You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode number 133 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. Last week we hit the pause button on the Peninsula campaign to talk about a couple of related issues. If you were reading a magazine article, you might think of them as sidebars. But this week we're going to head back to the Peninsula and get back to the action. Right. So just to recap... McClellan has transferred the Army of the Potomac to the peninsula, and even though Abraham Lincoln approved this plan, the president still had major reservations about it. Lincoln's major condition in approving the operation was that Little Mac had to leave enough troops behind to guarantee Washington's security. McClellan thought Lincoln's fears for the capital were ridiculous, So he rather creatively juggled the numbers with regard to the troops he said were available to protect Washington. But when the president found out about this, he called McClellan on it and decided to hold back McDowell's corps. Little Mac threw a hissy fit about this, and he would ultimately blame all the failures of the Peninsula campaign on this withholding of McDowell's troops and on the treacherous scheming of his political enemies back in Washington. Meanwhile, however, quite aside from the matter of McDowell's corps, Little Mac had been thrown for a loop when he started marching up the peninsula and ran into the Confederate defenses at Yorktown and along the Warwick River. McClellan had anticipated meeting some opposition at Yorktown, but the unexpected enemy resistance along the Warwick River was an unforeseen complication, and it discombobulated Little Mac. This lack of flexibility was a key flaw of McClellan's generalship. Rather than adapting, improvising, and overcoming, Little Mac instead allowed his rapid march up the peninsula toward Richmond to be derailed by this unexpected difficulty, and he ultimately spent a month in front of Yorktown, bringing up his big siege guns and preparing positions for them, so that he could demolish the Confederate defenses in an earth-shattering bombardment. McClellan later sought to blame his decision to spend a month in front of Yorktown on the loss of McDowell's Corps, arguing that the absence of the First Corps, quote, left me incapable of continuing operations which had begun. It compelled the adoption of another, a different, and less effective plan of campaign. It made rapid and brilliant operations impossible. It was a fatal error, end quote. But we just want to stress that, quite aside from what he said later, 
McClellan's inexcusable delay in front of Yorktown had nothing at all to do with the withholding of McDowell's corps from him. By Little Mac's own timetable, McDowell's corps would have still been a couple of weeks away from arriving on the peninsula anyway, and at the time he came up to Yorktown and ran into the Warbrick River line, McClellan, by his own estimation, outnumbered the Confederate defenders on the peninsula by at least a five-to-one margin. So, other than Little Mac's own inherent caution and his inability to adapt to unforeseen circumstances, there was absolutely no reason he couldn't have just brushed aside the rebels in front of him and continued the march up the peninsula toward Richmond. As McClellan failed to quickly overcome the flimsy rebel defenses on the peninsula, Abraham Lincoln was frequenting the telegraph room over at the War Department, waiting for news from Little Mac and from Tennessee, where Ulysses S. Grant's army at Pittsburgh Landing was locked in combat with the Confederates. Lincoln waited impatiently for McClellan to take advantage of his numerical superiority. He telegraphed Little Mac, quote, I think you had better break the enemy's line from Yorktown to Warwick River at once, end quote. But still McClellan delayed, having decided that rather than assaulting the enemy defenses with his infantry, he would conduct what he later called, quote, the more tedious but sure operations of siege, end quote. Although in promoting his plan for the Peninsula Campaign, McClellan had spoken of rapid movements and brilliant thrusts against the enemy capital, it seems that was primarily because he knew that was what the Northern public and the Lincoln administration wished to hear. When, in reality, Little Mac always intended to lay siege to Richmond, pounding the rebels into submission with his big siege guns. Seven years before this, when he was an official U.S. military observer during the Crimean War, he had been fascinated by the great siege of the Russian fortress of Sevastopol. Siege warfare, with its slow, methodical operations, appealed to the engineer in McClellan, and to his inherent caution and his earnest desire to save soldiers' lives. Despite his later claims to the contrary, McClellan obviously always envisioned a successful peninsula campaign that culminated in a long-drawn-out siege of Richmond that cost very few casualties from combat. The fact that he brought so much heavy ordnance along to the peninsula indicates that a siege was his preferred tactic and one that he intended to employ all along. When he came up against the unexpected situation along the Warwick River, Little Mac seems to have decided he would use Yorktown to give his siege gunners their first practice for the main event, which would be later on in front of Richmond. Predictably, though, McClellan's long delay gave the Confederates time to bring substantial numbers of reinforcements down to the peninsula. Little Mac had started off on this campaign with the stated intention of opening up an entirely new front, and with a lightning march, getting to Richmond ahead of Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston's army. But McClellan's month-long delay at Yorktown gave the rebels the gift of time, and as Joe Johnston's army used that gift of time to shift down to the peninsula, it meant that Little Mac would end up facing the very rebel army he claimed he had been trying to avoid.
Once the Army of the Potomac started disembarking at Fort Monroe at the tip of the peninsula, it took a while for the Confederate authorities in Richmond to discern McClellan's intentions. Perhaps he was simply using Fort Monroe as a staging area before moving south to expand Burnside's foothold on the North Carolina coast. Or perhaps his target might be Norfolk, just across Hampton Roads from Fort Monroe. But once McClellan started his advance up the peninsula, the Confederates realized his objective was Richmond, so elements of Joseph E. Johnston's army promptly began to move down to the peninsula from their positions some 50 miles northwest of the rebel capital. Once Joe Johnston arrived at Prince John Magruder's defensive line on the peninsula, he was not impressed. He saw at once that Magruder had been using smoke and mirrors to buy time and to mask the weakness of his lines. After reviewing Magruder's positions, Johnston wrote to Robert E. Lee in Richmond, saying, quote, No one but McClellan could have hesitated to attack. End quote. Johnston considered the peninsula indefensible, and so, almost immediately after arriving on the scene, he requested a conference with Jefferson Davis and went to Richmond to explain why he thought it was necessary to retreat up the peninsula to a position closer to the Confederate capital. The request for a conference was unusual in that, as we've mentioned previously, Joe Johnston and Jefferson Davis had developed highly bitter, distrustful attitudes toward one another, and the general's behavior recently had consisted mainly of ignoring the Confederate president. Johnston had taken to completely disregarding Davis's inquiries and suggestions, to the point that the president was largely in the dark as to his general's thoughts and actions. And Joe Johnston's strained relationship with Jefferson Davis was not going to improve once the general shared his opinion that the Confederate forces on the peninsula needed to abandon Yorktown and fall back on Richmond. For the April 14th meeting, Davis invited his military advisor, Robert E. Lee, and the Confederate Secretary of War, George Randolph. Lee's most recent assignment had been commanding the Confederate defenses along the South Atlantic coast, but he had been recalled to Richmond by Jefferson Davis to serve as Davis's military advisor, a kind of unofficial general-in-chief charged with overseeing, quote, the conduct of military operations under the direction of the president, end quote. As for George Randolph, he was the Confederacy's third Secretary of War, having replaced the abrasive Judah P. Benjamin. Benjamin had taken the blame for the string of Confederate reverses during the first winter of the war and resigned, but Jefferson Davis valued Benjamin's support as an ally in the cabinet, so the president immediately appointed him Secretary of State. State would be Benjamin's third cabinet position, since he had started out as the Confederacy's first attorney general before moving over to the War Department. So Jefferson Davis brought Lee and Randolph to the meeting, and Joe Johnston also brought back up. He arrived with his second-in-command, Major General Gustavus W. Smith, and one of his division commanders, Major General James Longstreet. At the conference in Richmond, the six men debated strategy for 14 hours. Against Johnston's stated desire to retreat closer to Richmond, Davis and Lee maintained that the peninsula afforded great advantages for an outnumbered defender, and in the end, their argument carried the day. Davis ordered Johnston to defend the Yorktown line. 
The general later admitted that he knew the administration would eventually see that he had to fall back on Richmond, and this knowledge, quote, reconciled me somewhat to the necessity of obeying the president's order, end quote. And so while Joe Johnston chafed at being told he had to defend a line that he considered indefensible, George McClellan continued to prepare for his big bombardment of Yorktown. The bombardment was scheduled to begin on May 5th, and the preparations took time and enormous labor. To protect the heavy guns, Union soldiers working under cover of night dug a line of earthworks paralleling the enemy line, about a mile from it. Behind this parallel, ramps and platforms of logs and earth were erected. The big siege guns could be brought up part of the way by barge on a creek branching from the York River, but then had to be conveyed inland over corduroy roads laid over the knee-deep mud and muck. The biggest cannon, Seacoast Parrot guns that fired 200-pound shells, weighed more than 10 tons each and required teams of up to 100 horses to pull them. Then the guns had to be maneuvered onto their firing platforms by elaborate rigs of block and tackle. Meanwhile, the Union soldiers continued to work day after day on the defenses protecting the gun batteries. It was grueling, tedious work, and two out of every three days it rained, and every hour or so the Confederate artillery would send over harassing fire. But by Saturday, May 3rd, nearly all of Little Mac's siege guns were in place, 114 of them, in addition to the more than 300 pieces of field artillery accompanying the Army of the Potomac. During the preparations for the big bombardment, McClellan had grown more confident every day as his army grew larger and the siege guns moved into place. On April 22nd, in response to his continued appeals to Washington for more men, Little Mac had received a substantial part of McDowell's withheld corps in the form of the 12,000-man division of Brigadier General William B. Franklin. For a while, McClellan talked of using these men in an amphibious assault a few miles below Gloucester Point over on the far side of the York River, but then he thought better of it and kept them aboard their transports to await the completion of his siege preparations at Yorktown. McClellan had entrusted the preparations for the bombardment to Brigadier General Fitz John Porter, a capable West Pointer and a personal friend who commanded the sole regular Army Division in the Army of the Potomac. Porter knew his business and did it thoroughly, even to the extent of ascending frequently in one of Thaddeus Lowe's observation balloons to study the enemy dispositions. On one ascent, the balloon broke its mooring lines and drifted over the Confederate lines. When it finally drifted back to friendly territory, Porter climbed up into the balloon's rigging to open the gas valves and landed safely in a federal encampment. George McClellan spent almost an entire month in front of Yorktown, arranging everything for his big bombardment that would blast the rebel positions. But by the time that Little Mac and Fitzjohn Porter were making their final preparations, across the way Joe Johnston was making arrangements of his own. Discerning that the Federals were getting ready to attack, Johnston sent word to Richmond in late April that the day he had warned about had come. After a few delays, he ordered the Confederate Army to withdraw from Yorktown on the night of May 3rd. To cover the retreat, Johnston ordered his own artillery to send out a massive barrage, and then, under cover of those fireworks, 
After dark, the Confederates filed out of their lines and headed up the peninsula toward the old colonial capital, Williamsburg, which was about 12 miles away. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For his retreat, Joe Johnson had organized his force into four commands, led by Longstreet, D.H. Hill, Gustavus Smith, and David Jones, who was replacing an ill Magruder. Jeb Stewart's cavalry provided the rear guard. The Confederate evacuation, which required several hours, was carried out with great stealth. At his headquarters near Yorktown, McClellan was writing a letter to his wife shortly after midnight when he noted uneasily, quote, the perfect quietness which reigns now, end quote. At daybreak, it became apparent that the rebels were gone, and so in the end, McClellan won Yorktown as he had always hoped, without a fight. Federal troops advancing cautiously into Yorktown that Sunday morning, May 4th, found over 70 heavy naval guns, which the Confederates had abandoned as too heavy to transport. The cannon had originally been part of the Federal stores captured by the rebels when they seized the naval base at Norfolk. Capturing almost as much attention as the enemy evacuation itself was the discovery that the retreating Confederates had planted mines, which back in those days they called torpedoes. The rebels had put these torpedoes in all manner of places in and around the fortifications. These mines were devised by Confederate General Gabriel J. Rains, whose brigade had manned the main redoubt at Yorktown and who was convinced of, quote, the vast advantages to our country to be gained from this invention, end quote. Rain's torpedoes were artillery shells buried in roads and pathways and rigged with pressure-sensitive percussion fuses or hidden trip wires. Rain's idea was simply to slow up the pursuing Federals, but some of his men apparently became carried away with their assignment and put the devices inside houses and around wells and in flour barrels, which struck the Yankees and some Southerners 
as a highly uncivilized kind of warfare. There were probably four or five Union soldiers killed by the torpedoes, and perhaps a dozen or so wounded. An angry McClellan proclaimed the enemy, quote, guilty of the most murderous and barbarous conduct, end quote. And he issued orders that the Confederate prisoners were to be made to dig up and disarm the devices. The ethics of the use of the torpedoes also became a subject of debate in the Confederate High Command, and Reigns was eventually transferred to the James River defenses, where his particular talents could be applied to the more acceptable pastime of blowing up Yankee warships. Partly because the torpedoes were such a nasty surprise, but mostly because the Confederate evacuation was so unexpected, the Union cavalry didn't start off in pursuit of the enemy until about noon, and it took even longer for the five divisions of Federal infantry to follow the blue-clad horsemen up the peninsula. But while muddy roads slowed the Federal pursuit, the progress of the Confederates' wagons and artillery was even slower. The two retreating rebel columns on the roads from Yorktown and from Lee's Mill in the middle of the peninsula averaged less than a mile an hour. Finally, in mid-afternoon, the Federal cavalry and horse artillery under Brigadier General George Stoneman caught up with the Confederate rear guard a few miles short of Williamsburg. After a series of running skirmishes, the rebel horsemen took refuge behind a line of earthworks two miles east of the town, where they were soon reinforced by several brigades of Confederate infantry that Joe Johnston detached to check his pursuers. Well-aimed Confederate artillery fire soon drove back the Federal cavalry. The line of light fieldworks manned by the Confederates had been constructed by Magruder some months before. The line consisted of 13 redoubts and extended for about four miles across the narrow neck of the peninsula. Its flanks were impassable, blocked by creeks and marshes. The largest redoubt was named Fort Magruder and was an enormous bastion 600 yards wide that occupied the center of the line. Cannon sighted here commanded the point a mile away where the two roads up the peninsula from Yorktown and Lee's Mill converged. An open plain dotted with rifle pits extended from Fort Magruder. Beyond this open ground and along the two converging roads lay a tangled stretch of logs, stumps, and brush, which was the debris left when part of the woods had been cut to give the defenders a clear field of fire and to build an obstructive abatis, a barricade of felled trees, to slow the attackers. Neither opposing commander had anticipated the Battle of Williamsburg, and neither was there when it began. McClellan had stayed behind near Yorktown to supervise the embarkation of four divisions that were to be sent 30 miles up the York River to West Point in hopes of cutting off the Confederate retreat. And Joe Johnston, who suspected just such a flanking move by McClellan, was already beyond Williamsburg, hurrying to get his army safely past the West Point area. Next week we'll look at the fighting at Williamsburg, which started as a rear guard action and grew into the first full-scale engagement of the Peninsula Campaign. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity of Emancipation, African Americans and the Fight for Freedom by Glenn David Brasher. This is an extremely interesting book, 
and one we highly commend to you, uh, in that Glenn David Brasher does something almost entirely new in looking at the Peninsula Campaign and how the participation of African Americans in the campaign influenced Abraham Lincoln's decision to issue the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation later in 1862. Brasher shows how the involvement of blacks in the campaign helped convince many Northerners that emancipation was a military necessity. Adam Goodhart, the author of the book 1861, The Civil War Awakening, says, quote, In vivid, deeply researched detail, Glenn David Brasher presents a crucial but almost unchronicled chapter of Civil War history. Anyone seeking to understand how the war to save the Union became a struggle for African American freedom should read this important work. So that the Peninsula Campaign and the Necessity of Emancipation, African Americans and the Fight for Freedom by Glenn David Brasher. Don't forget you can find a handy list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find out how to contact us, find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed, and find out how to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. You can also make a donation to help support the podcast, which is what David M. in Illinois did just today. David, thank you, wow, for the very generous donation. And that's about it for this show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Next time, we'll look at the Battle of Williamsburg, so Rich and I hope you'll join us again for that. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.